welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So as many long-run listeners to the show will be aware, one of my criticisms that I've made a number of times of attacks on social justice is I think our detractors often haven't made any effort at all to understand what we actually believe. I think many of the so-called public intellectuals who attack social justice movements often do so from a place of, at best, lazy caricature and, at worst, straw manning or, I think, sometimes willful misinterpretation. Actually, of course, conservatives and other critics of social justice have felt exactly the same way in reverse, and sometimes legitimately so. Sometimes I think people on my side do just write off all concerns that don't align with our worldview as um, bigoted or coming from a bad place, which I don't, in spite of being accused of that sometimes. So I've wanted for a while now to try and have an honest conversation with a critic of social justice in a way where we're actually making an effort to understand each other's points of view. And I hope you'll find this episode to be that. So my guest today is Professor Glenn Lowry. Glenn is a critic of social justice, and he's particularly been a critic of a lot of the talk on the left about race. But with that said, he's someone I follow, and I listen to his podcast, The Glenn Show, which you should as well, because I think... It's interesting and informative, and as much as anything, as I say to Professor Lowry at the beginning of our conversation, I like his show because it's clear he understands the views that he's critiquing, and that makes a big difference for me. So I asked Professor Lowry on. He was very generous with his time. He came on, even though I warned him in advance it would be with a liberal who was not sympathetic to his ideas, but he nonetheless very graciously came on and explained them. Professor Lowry is the Merton P. Schultz Professor of Social Sciences and Economics at Brown University. He's also taught at Boston, Harvard, and Northwestern, and the University of Michigan. He holds a BA in Mathematics and a PhD in Economics. As an academic, Professor Lowry has published mainly in areas of applied applied microeconomic theory, game theory, industrial organization, natural resource economics, and the economics of race and inequality. He's been elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, of the Econometric Society, member of the American Philosophical Society, vice president of the American Economics Association, and president of the Eastern Economics Association. In 2005, he won the John von Neumann Award. More pertinent to our conversation, he has been a prominent social critic and public intellectual, writing on the themes of race, inequality, and social policy. He's published over 200 essays and reviews in the Journal of Public Affairs for the US and abroad. He's a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, is a contributor to the Boston Review, and for many years was a contributing editor to the New Republic. He's written many books on this topic, including One by One, From the Inside Out, Essays and Reviews on Race and Responsibility in America, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, Ethnicity, Social Mobility and Public Policy, and Race, Incarceration and American Values, which we cover briefly in this interview. So we both represent our points of view. I left the discussion fairly unedited, so you just get the honest exchange as we had it. 
and I'm not going to preface it with any points. I don't want to sort of unfairly um, attack a view in advance or anything like that. One point that I will make just in terms of understanding the conversation we're having is that this is quite a high-level conversation. We sometimes, like, skip the first few steps of an argument to try and get to what's really bothering us. And a final point to make is, I think, especially towards the end of this interview, if you were to take certain bits in isolation, as I joke at the end, you might get the feeling that Professor Glenn Lowry was the liberal here and I was the conservative. That's not what's happening here. And I think Professor Lowry would agree with me here. What's happening is I am a liberal who is sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, the idea of reparations, all of those sorts of things. Professor Lowry is a conservative who is sceptical of all of those things. And we remain that way throughout this discussion. But we're also both really trying to put our arguments in ways that will be accessible to the other side. So Professor Lowry appeals to a number of liberals' values and concepts, and I appeal to a number of conservative ones. So our underlying positions haven't changed, but we're both, and I think Professor Lowry's very gifted at this actually, we're both trying to make our ideas make sense to someone on the other side. But don't let that confuse you. I don't think either of us necessarily changed our minds here. One final, final point just before we get to the interview is next week's episode will be an audience questions episode. So I've received a whole bunch of questions about topics we've covered on the show. And if you want to send more in, please do on social media. There's still a few slots left in that. So one issue we touch on very briefly and then move on is the whole race and IQ debate. I've mentioned before that I don't think this is credible. And I'll say no more on it here other than that I've received a bunch of questions on it. And I'll address why I don't think the Charles Murray thesis is credible on the next episode. I'm not going to cover it here, except for one question I did get, which I quite liked, and I think sets this up nicely. Someone asks, do I reject the Murray thesis on race and IQ because I think it's wrong or because I think it's not politically correct? Absolutely, because I think it's wrong. And this applies to everything I've been saying about political values, about social justice, everything you're about to hear me say on this. I'm at the heart of it, when I express my point of view on this podcast, just trying to tell the truth in public. And as a moral consequentialist, I don't see as much of a gap between ethical truth and other sorts of truth as other people do. But when I talk about even very difficult and very complex issues like race, I'm just trying to describe historical and political and even moral reality as honestly as I can. I never say anything because I want to earn some woke points. And I hope that's not the image that I give off on this show. And I think where people legitimately become frustrated with social justice is when they sense that it's performative, when they sense it's people trying to project a certain image of themselves or to appear to be very concerned and empathetic when perhaps they're not. And unfortunately, that's a stereotype that sometimes lands. That is true of some social justice types, but it's not at all where I'm coming from. My critique of Charles Murray is based on the fact that I think he's wrong, and also that I think those ideas are harmful. But 
when I mean that they're harmful, I am making a claim about the world. I'm making a claim about the impact of those ideas on public discussion and on public policy that ultimately, I think, harms people. And that is an empirical claim about the world that is big and complex, but theoretically at least falsifiable. It's nothing whatsoever to do with taking offence or validating hurt feelings in a way that admits of no response and is unfalsifiable. So, like I say, when I express my point of view, I'm just trying to tell the truth in public. And that includes course correcting if I get it wrong. So, that was a fairly long preamble. Let's get straight into today's show. For conservatives who might listen to this, I hope you'll hear someone who's attempting to practice what I preach. I start the conversation by trying to sum up the conservative view on race in as charitable a way as I can. Those aren't my views, but I do want to show that I have understood them. And then for liberals listening to this, I really do think you're not going to get a better example of the conservative critique of our positions than Glenn Lowry. And I'll leave you with a quick quote, as I often do, from John Stuart Mill to explain why I think it is important to have conversations like this. Long-time listeners will know that John Stuart Mill is my favourite political philosopher. So in On Liberty, he says famously that he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. He goes on to say, however, that it is not enough, and I quote here, it is not enough that he should hear the arguments of adversaries from his own teachers, presented as they state them, and accompanied by what they offer as refutations. That is not a way to do justice to the arguments, to bring them into real contact with his own mind. He must be able to hear them from persons who actually believe them, who defend them in earnest, and do their very utmost for them, he must know them in their most plausible and persuasive form. End quote. And with that in mind, it is my absolute pleasure to bring you Professor Glenn Lowry. I am joined today by Professor Glenn Lowry. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's very good to be with you, Toby. Cool. So I've been listening to your show for a while. And as I was telling you before we came on, we've had a number of conversations about race and the race debate in America. And I sort of thought, you know, I listened to a few conservative commentators on this you know, let's get a conservative on and see if we can have a productive and civil exchange, see how that goes. And so I asked you on, and then it occurred to me I just put you in a box of a conservative commentator, and you might not want to be in that box. So I wanted to start by just asking how you, um, maybe if you could talk a little bit about your ideological history and how you self-identify politically these days. Well, I wouldn't blame you for labeling me a conservative in that um, I am, uh, I've been around for a while. And back in the 1980s, I was a Reagan Republican. Uh, I almost went to work for the Reagan administration. And 
except for the fact that there was some personal scandal that exposed me as unfit for public service, I might well have done so. Uh, in retrospect, I must say I'm grateful to whatever gods may be for having spared me service in the Reagan administration. But at the time, I was very quite gung-ho about doing so. Uh, that was in the 1980s. I moved toward the center of the ideological spectrum and even thought of myself as somewhat left of center in the 90s. Uh, and into the first decade of this century, um, one of my books, it's a small volume called uh, Race, Incarceration, and American Values, makes what I believe is a left-of-center criticism of mass incarceration. Uh, Michelle Alexander, the author of the uh, uh, well-known book, um, The New Jim Crow, actually um, cites me in her foreword as uh, an inspiration in this respect. Um, I critique the consequences of such large-scale use of imprisonment as a part of American social policy and the disparate effect that the use of prisons in that way had on Black populations. My book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, which was published in 2002 by Harvard, um, is also, I think, pretty much a center-left uh, exposition. I, perhaps some people will agree, but I defend affirmative action in the book, and I uh, argue that racial stigma, uh, an ideological residue of the uh, period of slavery and immediate post-slavery social life in the United States continues to impair the opportunities for Blacks into the present day. So if you had asked me this question, I don't know, 15 years ago, I would have been offended if you called me a conservative. I would have said I'm a former conservative or I'm a recovering conservative or something of that sort. However, and I'll stop, uh, in the last 10 years, I found myself reasserting some of the older arguments from the conservative days of my youth. And I found myself disaffected by some of the movements that are now well-advanced and uh, popular, Black Lives Matter being one of them. And I found myself reacting with alarm and maybe even mild disgust at the success of certain writings on race, uh, such as uh, ta Coates's uh, well-received Between the World and Me, the, uh, the uh, National Book Award, if I did this correct, uh, winning uh, uh, open letter to his son, the American dream is, is, is fake. Uh, white supremacy pretty much defines the conditions of blacks in American society and so on. I found myself reacting against that uh, new, newly emergent uh, consensus. So I, I don't know what that all adds up to. On my Facebook page, I describe myself as an inveterate contrarian, okay? A, a man who doesn't follow crowds anywhere, uh, who is uh, intrinsically averse to fashion and fad and groupthink. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to be an outsider, it seems to me, no matter what. And nowadays, what with Donald Trump having ascended to the presidency and uh, what with uh, white supremacy being uh, newly resurgent as, a, as an ideology, white nationalism in some quarters in American society, the natural inclination is to rebel against all things even mildly conservative. And since I'm an inveterate contrarian, when I see the herd rebelling against all things even mildly conservative, I want to stop and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, 
not everything that they're saying is wrong or bad or whatever, and, 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 and pushing a little bit against the, the zeitgeist. Um, but I should also mention that I'm, I'm a professional economist. I my PhD from MIT. I mean, I'm a neo, neoliberal in the sense of believing in markets and distrusting the socialist impulse and uh, thinking that uh, incentives matter and that, uh, of course, we want to help disadvantaged people, but we don't want to we don't want to uh, uh, give handouts that uh, inhibit people from being able to take care of themselves and thinking that, um, uh, yes, wealth is too unequally distributed, but we don't want to create a, a system in which uh, we uh, destroy the fruits of people's labor or their ingenuity or inventiveness and so on and so forth. So. Um, if you want to call me a conservative in the context of the race debate here in the year 2018, I'm not going to argue with you about that. Okay, cool. Thanks for that, very much. Um, I do, I do recommend. Um, it's it's just called the Glenn Show, right? Um, on yes, Blocking Heads Show. TV. I try to consume. Um, I, I spend just so much of my life consuming political arguments, and I do try to do them from a variety of ideological sources. And I would say there's some. I'm just going to call you a, a conservative, if that's okay with you. There's some conservatives um, I follow who I'm more to just take the temperature of what's going on. I'm not necessarily expecting to be convinced. I just follow them because I want to know what's happening. And there's others who I follow and I genuinely learn stuff from. And you're definitely in that latter camp, along with people like, um, I don't know, someone like Ross Douthat I follow, and I, I I learn stuff from his columns and his talks, and I encounter arguments that, even if I'm still retaining a generally left-of-centre perspective, um, I'm incorporating those arguments and saying, well, we have to acknowledge X, Y, or Z when we assert our point of view. And one of the things, if I may, that I've always really liked about your podcast is, even if it's coming from a somewhat different ideological place to me, you have a very multifaceted approach to political argumentation, which I think is really lacking in today's discourse, in that a lot of the times you're able to give the opposing point of view to yours your own, and then another point of view which is just kind of sitting on the side and is interesting, and it doesn't just it doesn't reduce to just a set of talking points. So I've been really engaged and interested by a lot of the discussions that you've had there, and I definitely recommend people check that out. Well, thank you, Toby. I appreciate hearing that. Um, so let's move into this debate um, in terms of race. So let me have a go at doing a um, Glenn Show-style summing up of the terrain in what seems to be one of the critical fault lines here. And you can tell me, first of all, if you think my characterization is right, and then where you stand within that and what you'd build on it. So on the left side of the debate, um, the narrative seems to be something like this. Black people obviously spent three centuries in slavery in America. They had to endure decades of discrimination after that, be it uh, sharecropping, be it redlining, being excluding from housing and so on. That's obviously impacted their ability to have wealth to be a part of the political system today. And on top of that, they endure all sorts of discrimination in terms of employment, housing, 
what have you, with the result that there's a huge wealth gap between black and white America, as well as stuff like a huge incarceration gap. The conservative critique of that argument is they would start by acknowledging the historical validity of a lot of the points that the liberals made, but then also point out the role of culture in perpetuating a lot of black disadvantage they see. So looking at the wealth gap, they would say, yes, it is true. Some of that has been caused by historical discrimination, but why it's perpetuated is also because of cultural factors such as spending and investment patterns, such as high divorce and single motherhood rates, such as higher crime rates, and that um, so obviously I'm white, right? I'm putting words into your mouth, but you would say we have to be prepared to call out our own and work on, on our own improvement. Even if we didn't get ourselves in this position, we may be the only ones who can get ourselves out of it. So that's my Glenn Lowry style attempt to argue both sides. And I want to know if you think my characterization needs anything building on and where you would fall within that. No, I think as a brief summary, your characterization is, is quite apt. Um, and I fall on the conservative side of the divide as you just constructed it. Um, I should mention uh, my PhD dissertation, which was a lifetime ago, 1976, MIT Economics, um, included an essay entitled a dynamic theory of racial income differences, in which I elaborated as an economist uh, something close to the left liberal line, as you just described it. I said, look, history casts a long shadow. Contemporary inequality between black and white in America is a reflection of the history of the deprivation and discrimination and uh, dispossession of blacks. Uh, we can't expect this problem to cure itself of its own accord, and social justice, rightly understood, would involve some kind of reparation. I didn't use that word, but some kind of intervention by the state on behalf of the explicit goal of racial equality. Uh, otherwise, we would be stuck for an indefinite period of time with the consequences of an unjust history. Uh, that was Glenn Lowry circa 1976. By the time we get to 1985, I'm a Reagan Republican, and I'm talking about single-parent families and out-of-wedlock births and a low uh, labor force participation and uh, educational uh, underperformance and uh, low uh, labor force participation, maybe I said that, and so on, and high crime rates and so on. Uh, so I was saying, yes, I was saying the enemy within, you know, my formulation was there's an enemy without, that's white racism, and there's an enemy within. Those are cultural patterns that inhibit African-Americans seizing such opportunity as exists. I argued that the opportunity as exists may not be in completely equal, but it's certainly circa 1985, much more equal than it was a generation or two before the civil rights movement happened, it mattered, it opened up uh, possibilities for us, and that uh, if we were ever going to achieve the goal of equality within American society, we couldn't depend only on anti-discrimination laws and uh, affirmative action. We would have to also address some of these internal patterns 
Now, in saying that, I didn't uh, deny that the source ultimately of internal patterns might be historical discrimination. However, I held, as you just asserted, that it didn't matter so much what the source of these internal patterns were. What mattered was how they were going to be reversed. And that it was really implausible to imagine that patterns such as uh, a uh, majority of children born to African-American women being born to a woman without a husband would be reversed by state action or by white intervention uh, or by redistribution of, uh, of resources. They would have to be reversed by a determined effort amongst African-Americans ourselves to think differently about our responsibilities to our children and to one another, uh, and to uh, uh, sort of grab the, grasp the nettle uh, to, to face up to our uh, existential circumstance. No one is coming to save us, would be the way that I would put it. I, this is not a question of justice. It is unjust that one should be in a circumstance where one has to consider reform of uh, internal patterns of behavior in order to uh, be able to prosper in society, especially if those internal patterns have derived from historical mistreatment. That is not just. However, it may nevertheless be necessary to uh, take on that responsibility in virtue of the fact that no one is coming to save us. And no one is coming not only because they don't care. Some do, some don't. Some whites care deeply about what happens to black people. Perhaps most don't. No one is coming because no one can come uh, into the intimacy of our uh, gender relations, into uh, the uh, families and neighborhoods where our children are being raised. This, these are matters that are ultimately necessarily uh, uh, in the hands of African-Americans themselves, because what we're talking about is who are we as a people? How are we going to live? Um, and uh, what are we going to make of the sacrifices that our ancestors have endured in order to give us the opportunities that we that we confront. Uh, so uh, the homicide rate in African-American communities, which has gone up and it's gone down and it's now going up again in cities around the country, uh, so-called black on black crime, uh, true uh, employment patterns, uh, the absence of wealth and opportunity, uh, the residential segregation of American cities, the implicit racism and explicit racism of American police may all be playing some role in that dynamic. But if black young men are killing each other at extraordinary rates, such as they are, no one is coming to save us from that. If we're not prepared to face up to the reality of that pattern of behavior within our community, to condemn it, because I believe it's contemptible and deserves condemnation, to sanction it, uh, to exhort our own to uh, differently and to cooperate with such institutions of civil authority uh, as are uh, uh, legitimately addressing themselves to that problem. And we're not prepared to recognize that this is a problem with our ways of living among ourselves. Uh, we're going to be uh, sitting here 10 years from now, 20 years from now, uh, looking at exactly the same uh, issues. This is the kind of thing that the latter-day conservative Glenn Lowry would be inclined to say. Okay. Great. I made a couple of notes as you were speaking, and I've got a couple of thoughts or whatever. Let me begin by disavowing one response, which is to simply say you're blaming the victim, right? Because I don't think that's what you are doing. Um, and I think yeah. what you said acknowledged very well 
that the fact that black people find themselves in um, uh, uh, cultural patterns of behaviour that may well be not productive is likely or could very well be the result of historical discrimination by white people. So yes. you're fully acknowledging the quote-unquote victim role. And more than that, I think we should also just start by saying obviously culture matters and obviously culture's a real thing, right? So forget race, which is obviously much more tricky to talk about. Um, I grew up in Britain, you grew up in America, we're of different generations. It's entirely reasonable to say we're going to have different cultures, and that's going to affect our behaviours in different ways. Um, here's my thoughts. Firstly, and I think one of the reasons people sometimes rile about this is when we talk about black culture, and what I'm about to say is very much informed um, by my reading of Orlando Patterson, who we talked about a little bit before we came on. I think it's important to just stress that something like quote-unquote black culture or even white culture is not homogenous. And when we talk about like high patterns of crime, um, single parenthood, stuff like that, people are sort of imagining black people in the inner city living in violent um, communities, being raised by matriarchal or even non-existent families. That's true as a descriptor, but maybe for no more than, like, I don't know, 20% yeah. of the black people in the country. I think most liberals would also want to say, and I would want to say, one of the reasons that the crime rate is so high, particularly the homicide rate, for that particular subgrouping of African Americans is one, their poverty, which does affect crime rates, but also the interaction with police in that these crimes aren't being solved because people in those communities don't feel comfortable going forward and testifying against their neighbours, which you can say is like a cultural pattern which we need to get beyond, but it also comes from a legitimate place of historical distrust of police which is reinforced when people go on and they see police officers doing all of the things and the amount of police killings that we've had and maybe we can get back into that um and then the, even the people who do the black middle class which is a higher percentage of black people and i think people realize who would exhibit the cultural patterns you would want to see in terms of stable families not committing crime investing in education stuff like that they still struggle to retain wealth, even if they're doing everything right because of, I'm sure you're familiar with stats of like the same application to law school or the same resume, if it has a black name on it, will get less responses. So for yes, an underclass of black people, it may be harder for them to gain wealth because of cultural patterns. But even for the black people who, who are having the cultural patterns that we would want to see, it is also still harder for them to retain that wealth. Um, I've got a couple more points, but is there anything you want to come back on yeah, in what I just you, put on the table? Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity to interject. Um, I'm happy to uh, affirm uh, the points that you were making. I think it's very important to stress that we talk about black culture as if it were one thing, uh, and the most um, pathological dimensions of black culture, such as uh, high levels of violence in cities, becomes a, a, a stereotype about black people as such in the minds of many. 
And I think this is a major concern amongst black people about culture talk. First of all, culture talk overly focuses on pathology, when in fact, if we were going to talk about black culture, there are many uh, positive things that one could call attention to uh, that uh, will not typically be mentioned in, in the, uh, the op-ed piece. Um, and uh, homogeneity, the idea that we paint with a broad brush is that black people, quote unquote, were a particular way, when in fact we're talking about a population in the United States of in excess of 30 million uh, with uh, as much uh, internal uh, variegation as uh, one would expect in such a large aggregation of persons. So that's one point I thought deserved reiterating. There's one other thing that I want to say in the same vein, which is that uh, the uh, society here in the United States in which African-Americans find ourselves uh, is a polyglot mixture or admixture of many different cultural dynamics that are mutually influencing one another. So middle-class white kids in suburban communities will go and buy or download uh, hip-hop music produced by black rap artists in the inner city. And the the black rap artists now have a market. And that market uh, is uh, substantially uh, influenced by the preferences of the middle class white customers who are buying uh, their cultural production. So now they're playing to that audience to a certain degree, including playing to that audience's stereotypes about black culture. So now uh, the, the school mom comes along and says rap music is bad and it's pathological and you see how black people are. And what we're talking about is a few hundred musicians and artists who are responding to a national market, which consists mostly of white customers who are buying their products. How did that become suddenly black culture? Or I can give many examples. Drugs. The drug uh, traffic in the United States, it's a hundred billion dollar a year industry or more illicit drugs, marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamines and so on. It involves people of every race and every geography and every walk of life. Uh, but the street trafficking in drugs in large urban areas is largely in the hands of black and Latino youth in substantial part because who's going to do such a dangerous and low paid job except someone whose alternatives for employment, for gainful employment are. Um, I have a purely, a purely empirical question. Um, yeah. I have heard it asserted by people on the left that there's not much overall difference between, there's differences in which type of drugs are used, but there's not a huge amount of overall difference in terms of drug use by black and white people in America. To the best of your knowledge, is that right? Yes, that, that's correct. The surveys of uh, asking adolescents and young adults, so uh, when did they last use, you know, marijuana, cocaine, uh, and so forth, uh, don't return significant racial disparities. And sometimes whites are uh, reporting slightly higher rates of usage of these drugs. But when you look at who's being incarcerated for trafficking in these uh, commodities, you find it's disproportionately blacks. And as I was just trying to say, that may involve discrimination. No, I'm sorry, it may involve some discrimination by police, but I think it's also very natural to understand that if you have a, a, an off the books commerce, the people who are going to be engaged in that commerce are going to be people from the least advantaged sections of the society because the commerce is dangerous and uh, individuals are making rational choices about how to spend their time. Uh, if I have legitimate employment options that are superior to, um, to trafficking drugs on the street corner, I'm going to avail myself of those options to the extent that blacks do not have legitimate employment options at the same rate. They'll be overrepresented amongst those trafficking in drugs. 
But I was calling attention to that merely to make the point that the so-called drug-related culture is embedded within the larger American social economy in such a manner that even if Blacks are disproportionate participants in drug trafficking, that doesn't mean there's something about Blackness that's reflected in that fact. And it's not divorced from the, uh, the preferences and the behaviors of whites. I'll give one other example, and that's the family. We talk about out of wedlock births, and I talk about it a lot, about low marriage rates amongst blacks, high divorce rates, multiple partner paternity uh, situations where women have children by more than one man, and so on. Um, and what I want to observe is that um, the patterns of behavior between black men and black women that result in so-called social pathology within the black family are uh, embedded within a, a larger system of social behavior. To wit, if white men and black women were getting together at higher rates across the racial lines, Black men and black women would be dealing with each other in very different ways within the racial lines because black women would have greater options in terms of their mating partners. And that would create a different dynamic for the bargaining and um, give and take back and forth between black men and black women. I don't mean to be obscure here. Here's what I'm saying. A lot of black men are in prison. Uh, the marriage rate is low amongst African-American women, lower than I think they would want it to be. Uh, they put up with things like multiple partner uh, intimate relationships that they might not put up with if they had other options. That white men and black women are not so interested in one another, and the source of that can be on either side of that hypothetical transaction, gives black men more bargaining power or more ability to exploit uh, gender relations within racial groups. Again, just a quick purely empirical question as an interjection. Yes. My understanding is the number of black men who quote-unquote marry out, who marry white women, is higher than the number of black women who do. Twice as high the last time I looked. You're talking about single-digit percentages for black women, five, six, seven percent marry white men, and 15 percent of married black men being married to white women, numbers of that sort. So yes, that's true. Um, and that, that's a anyway, bit of an aside, sorry. Yeah, no, and I don't mean to uh, get us sidetracked into some demographic, uh, you know, uh, cul-de-sac. I'm merely trying to say there is no such thing at some level as the black family to be discussed in America in isolation from a discussion about trans or cross-racial uh, intimate social interactions. What happens among black people is partly a consequence of what does and doesn't happen between black people and white people, I want to say. And that cautions against a uh, unreflective uh, use of this notion of black culture as if it were a thing sitting there discreet and apart from everything else that's going on around us in American society. But do you think that is sort of um, what people are reacting to when they say, like, and I've already granted, I don't think this is the strongest critique, that when people say, like, you're victim-blaming or whatever, that they're reacting in, at some level to the idea that they're all sort of being grouped into one blot and sort of stereotyped by the worst behaviours from within their group. And there are people who want to do that, certainly, sure. right? There are people who, there are genuine white supremacists yeah. and whatever still out there. Um, I, I think that's part yeah. of it. I, but I, I want to say something else. That's certainly part of it. 
But I think another part of it, this is difficult to say, is shame. It, it is a knowledge within oneself of the truth of the culture critic, a knowing that there is something dreadfully wrong within one's own group, and uh, a feeling of shame and, and a repairing to a certain kind of defense in the face of that shame. How dare you? How, how, how dare you insult me with this? I mean, let me give an example. This is not about culture so much, although it is in a way about culture. So we talk about test scores, academic performance, SAT, admission to elite colleges, uh, uh, to selective uh, uh, charter uh, schools or uh, magnet schools in, uh, in a public school system and so forth. And we see racial disparity in the performance on these measures of intellectual achievement. Uh, this is a fact. Uh, it is massively consequential for social mobility of African Americans, and it's embarrassing. Now, one way of reacting to it is to take whoever <coughs> dares to call attention to racial differences in intellectual achievement and to call them a racist, a Charles Murray type, a eugenicist, someone who thinks black people are inherently inferior. That need not be the case at all. And I think we, we can agree that is kind of getting to the point where <coughs> I don't think it necessarily reveals bad intentions to point out that there's a test score gap. But if it seems really important to you to insist that that's genetic, that is kind of a line in my head that I feel like you're revealing bad intentions there. Uh, yes, yes, we can, we can agree about that. But there is a test score gap. It's important to recognize it and it's important to address it. And the reason I mentioned it as an example is to say that for many African-American advocates of social justice, even the mention of the test score gap causes a, a vitriolic reaction against the person saying it, uh, causing someone to be accused of blaming the victim. And you ask whether or not the motivation for that wasn't a sense that the critic painted with too broad a brush when he or she called attention to a test score gap. And I said, yes, that's part of the motivation. But another part of the motivation is the internal realization that in fact, the disparity is there, it's real and it's important. And a sense of shame about that fact and an effort to control the narrative by um, excommunicating anyone who dares to uh, call to our attention realities about which uh, we are uh, uh, deeply uh, ashamed and uncomfortable and also don't know what to do about it. Right. I mean, there's, if there there's... are no solutions. Why are you discussing this disparity, a person might say? I think there's also a purely empirical recognition that um, the real racists, as it were, people who like don't want to live next to black people or have them go to the same school, are a larger minority than we sometimes think about. So those two questions, if you poll them, will still get like a healthy 15% of white Americans will still own those opinions. And yeah. they're not this this complete I think we have the view that the, the genuine racists are like one percent of America, they're completely politically isolated. And no, this is a voting demographic that politicians, I mean our current White House seemingly more than ever, um, feel the need to pander to. And I think there's perhaps just um, a, a strategic view that we don't want to give those people any ammunition whatsoever, even if there are grains of truth in some of that, perhaps particularly if there are grains of truth in some of that ammunition. 
Um, I do have, like, a broader ideological point about the framing, and I want to track back to something you said earlier, is you said, does it matter the source of, let's just take it as writ, that part of what perpetuates black disadvantage, at least for some black people some of the time, is cultural patterns of behaviour, be it in terms of investment in education, marriage, stuff like that. Um, you said, does it matter if the source of that is historic white discrimination, or if the source of that is just something, say, that independently evolved in black communities? I'd put it to you that it does, not so much for practical purposes. It may well be the case that only internal processes can solve this. But I would say for ideological purposes, for the purposes, and I, I, I hate this word, but for the grand narrative that we tell ourselves as a nation, it does matter how we tell that story. So I think if the story is that one side of America saying there's cultural differences and that's the cause, and the other side of America is saying there's discrimination and that the, that's the cause, um, it seems like that's just too far apart and you're never going to get something that everyone can sort of invest in. My narrative, and again, I'm almost directly paraphrasing Orlando Patterson on this one, is he says in The Ordeal of Integration, and this is not a quote, but a paraphrase, he says, um, black people are certainly no worse than white people, but they're not supermen, and only supermen could endure centuries of ritualistic dehumanization and domination and exclusion without bearing some scars. Scars that may well be maladaptive in a more equal opportunities environment, but we must always remember the historical source of those scars and where the ultimate moral culpability for them lays. And I think that that is the element that's missing, is not so much a practical culpability, but a moral one, in that I can fully put myself, well, I don't want to say I understand what it feels like to be discriminated against racially, but I can fully say, well, yeah, there might be a lot of what you're saying that's true, but coming from someone who has societal wealth because of government programs that were explicitly designed to shut out my people, I don't want to hear what the fuck you have to say without an apology first. And I, I sometimes wonder if both sides of this story by themselves are going to be one hand clapping, and we need to find a narrative that, yes, acknowledges that culture is a real thing and it has a role here, but also acknowledges not the practical responsibility, but the moral responsibility for change. I was just very um, um, uh, preachy there, so feel free to jump in and... Uh, well, no, let, let me say a couple of things. I would not, without sympathy for uh, what you just uh, very, said, very well paraphrasing Orlando Patterson, a good friend of mine for decades now. And I, and I believe there's something important there. Um, for my own account, when discussing the question of reparations being paid to African-Americans for the crimes of historical crime of slavery and Jim Crow, I have taken the position that I'm against uh, financial reparations uh, but in taking that position, I try to explain that my main reason for being against it, against the payment to black people of some sums of money meant to represent compensation for the abuse of our ancestors and the ongoing consequences of uh, the uh, racial domination of black people in this country over centuries. The reason I'm against it is that it reduces to a quid pro quo 
something that should be an open-ended obligation. And the obligation is more of a relational than it, than it is of a financial character. And by that, what I mean to say is, if, Af- if, if Blacks are disproportionate in the prisons, if they're disproportionate on the welfare rolls and amongst those who are impoverished and who are unemployed and so on, given that we know that that's linked to American history, that should occasion a determination on the part of the country as a whole to, to uh, address those disparities, regardless of how long it takes and how much it costs. It is a it is a residue of a history that is 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 been um, uh, you know defaced <coughs> by um, by uh, uh, racism and and uh, racial domination. Excuse me. <coughs> so I want the narrative story about American social obligation, a story that would be embraced by those whose ancestors go back many generations here in the United States, and that would be taught by those whose ancestors have only arrived within recent decades (coughs) about what this country is and what we must do. And I want that account uh, to emphasize that the um, marginal condition of African Americans in contemporary society is linked directly uh, to a history of uh, racial uh, mistreatment. Um, I, and, and I worry that a payment of cash sum would be a kind of closing the books on the public obligation to African Americans, which I think is the wrong way to go. So I, I agree, but I, I, I want to call attention to an implication of that way of thinking. If the master narrative of the American nation state is to have a prominent place in it for the um, recognition of and determination to repair the consequences of a historical mistreatment of African-Americans, that means that we African-Americans are ourselves obligated, are we not, at some level, to affirm and embrace our position within the nation state whose uh, narrative we're arguing should be uh, so configured and whose obligations should uh, look to uh, remedying our conditions in a particular way. In other words, in other words, the reflexive anti-Americanism, the rejection of the American dream, which is characteristic of ta Coates's narrative, the condemnation of all things American as intrinsically racist and of, of no interest, the, the fantasy and romanticism of Afro-nationalism that envisions some kind of pan-national blackness or some kind of separation of black people from the rest of the polity would need also to be rejected. It's a flawed America, but it's our America. If we want, if we want America to acknowledge its crimes and remedy them, then we want also, don't we, uh, aren't we obligated also to acknowledge our Americanness uh, and to, at some level, uh, embrace uh, the nation state whose uh, narrative we hope to reshape and whose obligations to us we want to see acknowledged. Yeah, great. So I've got so much to say to that. Um, and I realize, no, we've still got a teeny bit of time left. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, I do have friends who are self-identified black radicals who are like, no, we just need to divest from white power structures and have our own spaces. And I'm sort of the white guy in the room, but like, no, I don't think that's, it's just not practical, if nothing else, right? Um, But to your point about the grand narrative and how America sees itself and how, like, um, black Americans participate within that national narrative, um, 
The other point I wanted to make is, yes, I think, and I think within that narrative on the white side, we need to do more to talk about the overwhelming and disproportionate contributions that black people have made to America. Um, so, um, you, you talked about the, the middle-class um, white kid listening to a black person pretending to be a gangster because he's been financially incentivized to do it. Well, that's a weird and perverse micro-example of just how culturally dominant black Americans have been in America for the last two centuries. And not culturally influential, culturally dominant. Almost every form of mainstream music that everyone listens to in the globe was originally invented and pioneered by a 13% minority of one country and maybe, what, like a 0.2% minority of the globe. Um, And I think we underrate contributions to music, to um, uh, literature, to art, to cuisine even, um, because, you know, history is studied by intellectuals and intellectuals tend to... um, emphasize the intellectual, but actually I take the view that that a civilization, and I count America not just as a country, but a civilization, is also defined by its music, by its art, by its culture. These are huge parts of what we are in our shared experience. And the black contribution to all of those things is mind-blowingly dominant. And I think that has to be a huge part of what we are. And when it comes to the reparations thing, I've always left the door open to some sort of modest reparations. And you could tie that sort of argument into it. You could say, if you look at the culture of American civilization, imagining that without black people is like imagining the Pacific Ocean without oxygen. It's just a non sequitur. America It's not just that black people are part of America. America would not be America but for black people. And given, granting some of what you say is true, and in in some ways here I'm arguing from the more conservative point of view and you're arguing from the more liberal one, if (laughs) if we want to be able to say to black people, and we are saying white America, hey, some of these problems you're going to have to solve by yourself, we have to do so from the place of... Um, moral competency. We, so if we did, say, do truth and reconciliation commissions about, like, lynching and redlining and stuff like that, and, yes, some sort of one-time cash payment, then we're in a position to say we acknowledge the historical evil that has led to these outcomes, and we acknowledge it not just with words, but with deeds. We've morally owned it with deeds. Then we might be in a position to have a more honest exchange about some of this stuff. But I just, I don't see us getting to the point of view where black people legitimately regard white people as having the moral authority to talk on these things without some sort of real owning of the moral culpability. I talked for a little bit there. No, I I think uh, that was very uh, well said and and very persuasive, certainly the outsized contribution that African-Americans have made to American civilization and its cultural products. And of course, there are other minorities to whom one could look with similar, you know, you could say Jews have played an enormous role as well in shaping American civilization, American culture. I don't mean to compare the two, but just to say the numerical minority, but the outsized influence on the on the tenor of the of the civilization and its cultural artifacts. Uh, I, I grant you too that standing uh, to engage in uh, cultural criticism is important, and outsiders uh, needing to uh, demonstrate their 
uh, fealty to some grand narrative of master narrative uh, as a precondition for having standing to enter into a discussion with insiders about how the insiders are living amongst themselves. Uh, that certainly makes sense to me. Um, so uh, I, I don't think you necessarily need to have a, an act of Congress uh, which appropriates funds, as was done for the survivors of the Japanese internment, uh, to pay out uh, checks or something of that sort to African Americans to have substantial public investments in um, uh, works that uh, would have the consequence of significantly boosting the opportunities and the status of African Americans. They need not have African American written onto the uh, the 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 you know the designation of what's what's to take place. Investing in our schools, ensuring that there was a job for anybody who was looking for a job, recognizing that we're overly punitive in the way in which we administer criminal justice to everybody. A universal basic income, if it uh, were to be decided that that was a desirable thing to do, uh, uh, and so forth. These are uh, activities that could be undertaken. The consequences of which would be enormously effective at increasing African American social status, but that need not uh, be sold and 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 branded under the label of "we're making repayment for the sins of the past." I think politically, you might have a better chance of uh, of achieving your goal if you were to to follow me. Let's take the issue, and we we are going on, but take the issue of police violence. It's true, and it's a terrible problem. It's true that there are police officers who abuse blacks in American cities. Some of them are racist. Some of them are also black, these police officers. It's true that uh, 1,000, 1,200 people a year are, are killed by police officers in the United States. That's true. And an outsized number of them are black. That's all true. But many of them are also white. Um, more of them are white than are black. There are too many people in prison in America Period. <coughs> the police in the United States <coughs> exercise too much unaccountable, uh, violent uh, authority over American citizens. Period. For every case of a of a uh, Michael Brown or Trayvon Martin who was not killed by a police officer, but uh, or Eric Garner or Tamir Rice uh, or Sandra Bland that you can find in which a black person has died at the hands of American police, you can find two or three cases of white people who have died in similar circumstances. There are parts of America in eastern Kentucky or southwestern Ohio or West Virginia or in um, Alabama and Mississippi and rural areas and small towns that are just as desperately poor as inner city communities of uh, New York City or Cleveland or Chicago or Detroit or Oakland, California. So um, I, I'm saying all of that to say, even if we agree at a level of political philosophy that the conditions and history of Black people require special uh, determination for redress, the packages that we formulate to implement that redress don't have to be labeled. Here we repay Black people. <clears throat> And some of the contribution that blacks might make to American civilization might be a humanization of the welfare state, might, might be a rethinking of mutual obligations that Americans have one to another without regard to race, uh, might be a sense that those who have prospered most uh, under this civilization have an obligation to those who have prospered least, regardless of what color there are. That's a gift that black people can give to America 
if we were to be thinking about our advocacy, not so much in ethnic chauvinistic terms, but rather in national and humanistic terms. First of all, can I just point out, um, I'm talking about national identity, moral standing, and grand narratives. You're talking about criminal justice reform and the welfare state. And, wait, hang on, you're the conservative and I'm the liberal here? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I mean, the, the point's well taken that um, the word reparations might be the wrong word because of its connotation. Um, yeah, so just to follow up, I know you made it in the service of a a larger point, but on um, police shootings. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll go this far down the road with you. Um, Americans of any colour seem to be in Western nations, uniquely at risk of police violence. So you're the economist, correct my statistics, but from what I've seen, about a thousand Americans are killed by police each year. Now, that's not to say the legitimacy of any of those killings, about a thousand are killed by police each year, of which about 500 are white and two, 250 are black. Right. So overall, more white people are killed. But then, of course, once you take into account that black people are only 13 percent of the population, statistically, there's a greater risk of being killed if you're black. But then you could also say, well, um, the the Friar study or something, if you mitigate other factors, then actually it's 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 more proportional. Um, so you can have a debate on whether black people are proportionally somewhat more likely to be killed or a lot more likely to be killed. I personally lean more towards the size that there is a disproportionate risk, but that's a big empirical debate that we don't have time for. Um, the, the overwhelming point is the police kill a thousand people a year. Like, if you look at the numbers in Europe, even accounting for population difference, you're talking like a two orders of magnitude difference. That's insane. And I think we have to have a redress. And this would be one of my big criticisms of the political right is I I, I would I don't have time to make the empirical case. I would make the case that that burden falls disproportionately on poor people and black people. But even granting something like the Friar study, we've got to have get away from this reflexive defense of police officers, whether the victim is white or black. Taking a human life should be the last resort of last resorts, and just, oh, I felt threatened by this person. I'm sorry is not a good enough response, and if we need to invest more in police pay or training or whatever, we should do that. But the the idea that, oh, police officers are risking their lives, therefore they have the power of life and death over us, I just don't accept. I view that as a fascistic idea. I'd love your response on that. I'm I'm, uh, very sympathetic to what you just said. Uh, First of all, the empirical fact that the uh, frequency of police uh, killings in the United States is uh, greater than in other uh, comparable societies, wealthy, uh, democratic, uh, Western uh, nations should not go unnoticed. Of course, the number of guns on the street in the United States is also greater than what you encounter in these other countries. Uh, And the amount of... uh, Violence, the rate of homicide, uh, robbery, and so forth. I'm not so sure about robbery and cross-national comparisons, but I'm fairly confident about homicide is also greater. Um, but I think that the the uh, accountability that police have in the event of uh, an incident in which they discharge their weapon and they take another life is less than it should be. I think the standard set by the United States Supreme Court in a decision, the name of which I don't recall, 
is that if the police officer subjectively feels that his or a citizen's life is in danger, then he's authorized to use deadly force. Well, that gives quite a bit of latitude to a police officer about the use of deadly force. Um, so I, I, I agree that, that's a, that that is a um, significant problem. I know the Fryer uh, study that you've mentioned a couple of times. Now, Roland Fryer was a student of mine back in the day, uh, 15, 20 years ago. <clears throat> um, and it is fairly persuasive to my mind that when you control for the conditions of the encounter, between the police officer and the citizen, the likelihood of the police uh, using deadly force against the citizen is not statistically greater if the citizen is black than if the citizen is white. Having control for uh, the time of day, uh, the part of town, the whether or not the et cetera, et cetera, all the other ancillary circumstances surrounding the encounter between police officer and citizen. But what that does not say, as you emphasize, is even if the race plays relatively a small role in the police officer's use of force, the fact that the police officer uses force is still uh, significantly higher in the United States than it is other places. The culture of police departments around their use of force, uh, the, the, the fact that uh, uh, the police departments tend to support their, uh, their own uh, with respect to holding uh, people accountable and so on, the, the politics of uh, the uh, police union, uh, municipal government interaction, and all of these are things that one, it seems to me, would want to look into. Uh, and if I were more inclined toward cultural and historical study, I might want to uh, study the history of the you know, settlement of the western uh, part of the United States, the frontier mentality, uh, uh, things of this kind, the militarization. Where do these police officers come from? Who are they? How are they trained and so on? I, I don't know enough, enough about this to speak authoritatively, but it's certainly a legitimate uh, area to uh, give our attention to in talking about police violence. Too much killing of police by police of citizens in the United States, uh, black citizens, white citizens, Latino citizens, yeah. all of us. One final point and then I'll let you close. Yes, I should. Yeah. I mean, um, sorry, I just feel I'd be remiss if I didn't say it, is um, just because you are clearly very informed and intelligent on these issues, and I want to, like, thoughts I've had, I want you to tell me if I'm getting it wrong and why, is that there's a question of, like, when, there, when you do notice a racial disparity, be it in police killings or, say, the incarceration rate would be another example, if the cause of that disparity isn't overt discrimination, does that mean that it's something we should be comparatively less concerned by? So, for instance, the Fryer study, I believe, takes into account where in town the killing took place. And I think that actually might be more the mechanism by which you get the racial disparity. And it's not the police officer sees a black person, it's like, well, I, I hate black people, I'm going to go kill him. It's more like we police black areas more heavily and more aggressively, more stop and frisk, more stuff like that. And I just, final question, does it, I could well say, yeah, that the fact that the discrimination might be not the most important causal link in why there's a disparity in, say, incarceration rates or police killing, does that mean we simply want to stop worrying about that disparity? I'd put it to you that it doesn't. I agree with you. It absolutely doesn't. The point is fundamental not only with respect to police violence, but in many arenas in which there are disparities. Uh, so suppose we talk about employment. 
Uh, suppose we see that blacks are less likely to penetrate the higher levels of uh, employment, uh, the positions that are more desirable and that pay more. Uh, and we say, oh, yes, but when we control for a work experience, education, uh, whatever, uh, we don't see so great a racial disparity. Well, work experience and education are consequences of social decisions that we are making. If racial patterns of subordination are being reinforced by the disparities of employment or police shootings or incarceration, that's a problem in and of itself. And if it turns out that discrimination by employers, once we've controlled for relevant factors, or by police officers, once we've controlled for the part of town in which they're operating, uh, does not uh, seem to account for the disparity, the things that we have controlled for are within our control. <laughs> so the disparity itself has uh, significant consequences, not the least of which is that it reinforces a narrative of black inferiority. Those disparities need to be addressed, even if the source of them is not discrimination. Some of that addressing is stuff that no one but African-American people can do for ourselves. But much of it, one might even argue most of it, is within the purview of broader social policy and a politics that determines to address disparate opportunities for the citizens of the state, regardless of their race, could be one instrument for redressing the racial disparities that are, uh, that are a part of uh, the inequality that we're talking about. Something like that. Fantastic. Listen, we just crossed the hour mark, so let's pause it there. I really want to thank you for coming on, for giving me your time. Like I said, I've listened to your show quite a bit, and I've enjoyed a lot of those conversations. So it's been really, really great to get you on, to put different things to you, because I've listened to, you know, your show and found myself thinking of questions I want to ask you. So it's been great to actually be able to ask you them. Um, are there any words you want to offer in closing, anything you think is important that we didn't touch on? And if um, listeners want to check out you or your work, where should they go? Well, they should go to glennlowry.com. That's G-L-E-N-N-L-O-U-R-Y.com and take it from there. No, I don't think I have anything else I want to say except to thank you for having me on. Hi, um, thank you so much for your time today. Enjoy your meal in France. I hope, uh, I'm sure it'll be fantastic. It's a two-star restaurant that I'm oh, told is to uh, die for. Oh, now I'm just like super jealous. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Toby, you got to come back to this side of the pond. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I've got a new patron I want to thank. So I want to thank publicly Nicholas Marr for signing up and sponsoring the show at the Patreon level on Patreon. So to those of you who didn't know what I just said, let me quickly explain that. So Patreon is a site where you can sponsor the creators of free online content. Free online content such as this podcast. So, I don't know about y'all, but I hate paywalls. If someone shares an article, the worst thing in the world is for me to find something I really want to read or listen to, and then I have to enter my credit card number. That's just a buzzkill. Everybody hates that. The problem is, in creating content, you do incur costs. So, 
it does cost a certain amount to put this podcast up, to have hosting fees, whatever. And it's just quite a lot of work, you know? Like, it's, um, for any individual episode between arranging the guest, doing research, um, doing the interview, doing the editing, getting it up there, easily 20, 25 hours, easy. Which I love doing, it's a great hobby. Um, but if people are able to help out, that's terrific. So, Patreon is a really easy website where you can just find any creator of free content and just give them money. Like, it's literally that simple. Um, You don't have to. Like, the content remains free. But if you are able to, it's terrific. So, check us out at patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, or you can go to politicalphilosophypodcast.com stroke support. And all of the links to all of our social media, ways to follow, whatever, that's all on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So, the way I have my Patreon set up is it's just per episode. I have a few suggestions. So I suggest two bucks an episode, and then just because, you know, it never hurts to ask, um, I put some higher levels in, um, and the Patreon one was uh, $10 an episode or more, which I want to super-duper thank Nicholas for getting involved at. And if you can afford to give even a buck or two, please do go on, and that helps. And then, you know, I target this... Uh, students and just casual listeners of philosophy but for people who can afford to give a little bit more if there's anyone interested um please do so like if we've got a few more people chipping in at the higher levels we could have like a real budget and like you know actually start thinking about maybe doing live interviews stuff like that i've got all sorts of ideas for, for how we could take this podcast to the next level um but yeah whatever you could do whatever's right for you um if you know a buck or two is right for you cool we'd love to have them if you're able to do some more cool that would be great if you can't support financially at all that's again totally fine i want this podcast to be able to go out to everyone another really big way um you can support it is just by sharing it on your own social media helping get the word out there so big thank you to anyone who's ever taken an action to support the podcast i hope you enjoyed this week's episode as i say in next week's episode i will be doing an audience questions so hit me up on social media if there's um any questions you want to ask me it can be about particular issues we've covered on this show, or just more general stuff, um, your turn to interview me. So that'll be out next week. After that, the philosopher Philip Pettit will be back on to talk about ethics. I'll be talking with the author of The Character Gap, Christian Miller. Then we'll have um, Shadi Hamid coming on to talk about political Islam. So that's what's coming up on the podcast through the rest of the year. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next week. Bye.